Chapter Eight of the Two Gun Men by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. The Finding of the Orphan. During the first few days of his connection with the Two Diamond, Ferguson had reached the conclusion that he would do well to take plenty of time to inquire into the situation before attempting any move. He had now been at the Two Diamond for two weeks, and he had not even seen Radford nor had he spoken half a dozen words with Stafford. The manager had observed certain signs that had convinced him that speech with the stray man was unnecessary and futile. If he purposed to do anything, he would do it in his own time and in his own way. Stafford mentally decided that the stray man was set in his ways. The wagon outfit had departed, this time down the river, Rope Jones had gone with the wagon, and therefore Ferguson was deprived of the companionship of a man who had unexpectedly taken a stand with him in his clash with Leviatt, and for whom he had conceived a great liking. With the wagon had gone Leviatt also. During the week that had elapsed, between the clash of the bunkhouse and the departure of the wagon, the range boss had given no sign that he knew of the existence of Ferguson nor had he intimated by word or sign that he meditated revenge upon Rope because of the latter's championship of the stray man. If he had any such intention, he concealed it with consummate skill. He treated Rope with a politeness that drew smiles to the faces of the men. But Ferguson saw in this politeness a subtleness of purpose that gave him additional light on the range boss's character. A man who held his vengeance at his fingertips would have taken pains to show Rope that he might expect no mercy. Had Leviatt revealed an open antagonism to Rope, the latter might have known what to expect when at last the two men would reach the open range and the puncher be under the direct domination of the man he had offended. There were many ways in which a petty vengeance might be gratified. It was within the range boss's power to make life nearly unbearable for the puncher. If he did this, it would, of course, be an unworthy vengeance, and Ferguson had little doubt that any vengeance meditated by Leviatt would not be petty. Ferguson went his own way, deeply thoughtful. He was taking his time. Certain things were puzzling him. Where did Leviatt stand in this rustling business? That was part of the mystery. Stafford had told him that he had Leviatt's word that Radford was the thief who had been stealing the two-diamond cattle. Stafford had said also that it had been Leviatt who had suggested employing a gunfighter, had even gone to Dry Bottom with the manager for the purpose of finding one, and now that one had been employed, Leviatt had become suddenly antagonistic to him. And Leviatt was in the habit of visiting the Radford cabin. Of course he might be doing this for the purpose of spying upon Ben Radford, but if that were the case, why had he shown so venomous when he had seen Ferguson sitting on the porch on the evening of the day after the latter had been bitten by the rattler? Mary Radford had told him that Leviatt was her brother's friend. If he was a friend of the brother, why had he suggested that Stafford employ a gunfighter to shoot him? Here was more mystery. On a day soon after the departure of the wagon outfit, he rode away through the afternoon sunshine. Not long did his thoughts dwell upon the mystery of the range boss in Ben Radford. He kept seeing a young woman kneeling in front of him, bathing and binding his foot. Scraps of a conversation that he had not forgotten revolved in his mind and brought smiles to his lips. She didn't need to act so plumb serious when she told me that I didn't know that I had any right to sit there and make 
pretty speeches to her. She wouldn't need to ask me to stay at the cabin all night. I could have gone on to Two Diamond. I reckon that snake bite wasn't so plumb dangerous that I'd have died if I'd rode a little while. As he came out of a little gully a few miles upriver and rode along the crest of a ridge that rose above endless miles of plains, his thoughts went back to that first night in the bunkhouse when the outfit had come in from the range. Satisfaction glinted in his eyes. I reckon them boys didn't make good with her, and I expect that some day Leviatt will find he's been wasting his time. He frowned at thought of Leviatt, and unconsciously his spurs drove hard against the pony's flanks. The little animal sprang forward, tossing his head spiritedly. Ferguson grinned and patted his flank with a remorseful hand. Well now, Mustard, he said, I wasn't reckoning on taking my spite out on you. You don't expect I thought you was Leviatt. And he patted the flank again. He rode down the long slope of the rise and struck the level, traveling at a slow lope through a shallow washout. The ground was broken and rocky here, and the snake-like cactus caught at his stirrup leathers. A rattler warned from the shadow of some sagebrush, and remembering his previous experience, he paused long enough to shoot his head off. There, he said, surveying the shattered snake. I reckon you ain't to blame for me being bit by your uncle or cousin or something. But I ain't never going to be particular when I see one of your family swinging their head that suggestive. He rode on again, reloading his pistol. For a little time he traveled at a brisk pace, and then he halted to breathe mustard. Throwing one leg over the pommel, he turned halfway round in the saddle and swept the plains with a casual glance. He sat erect instantly, focusing his gaze upon a speck that loomed through a dust cloud some miles distant. For a time he watched the speck, his eyes narrowing. Finally, he made out the speck to be a man on a pony. He's a fanning it some, he observed, shading his eyes with his hands. Hitting up the breeze for fair. He meditated long, a critical smile reaching his lips. It's right warm today, not just the kind of atmosphere that a man ought to be running his horse reckless in. He meditated again. How far would you say is off, Mustard? Ten mile? I'd reckon you'd stay if you was a knowing horse. The horseman had reached a slight ridge, and for a moment he appeared on the crest of it, racing his pony toward the river. Then he suddenly disappeared. Ferguson smiled coldly. Again his gaze swept the plains and the ridges about him. I don't see nothing that make a man ride like that in this heat, he said. Where would he have come from? He stared obliquely off at a deep gully, almost hidden by an adjoining ridge. It's been pretty near an hour since I shot that snake. I didn't see no man about that time. If we was around here, he must have heard my gun and sloped. He smiled and urged his pony about. I reckon we'll go look around that gully a little, Mustard, he said. Half an hour later, he rode down into the gully. After going some little distance, he came across a dead cow, lying close to an overhanging rock rim. A bullet hole in the cow's forehead told eloquently of the manner of her death. Ferguson dismounted and laid a hand on her side. The body was still warm. A four-month's calf was nudging the mother with an inquisitive muzzle. 
Ferguson took a sharp glance at its ears and then drove it off to get a look at the brand. There was none. Sleeper, he said quietly, with the two-diamond earmark. Most range bosses make a mistake in not branding their calves. Seems as if they're trusting to luck that rustlers won't work on them. I must have scared this one off. He swung into the saddle, a queer light in his eyes. Mustard, old boy, we're going to a bare flat. Maybe Radford's hanging around there now, and maybe he ain't, but we're going to see. But he halted a moment to bend a pitying glance at the calf. Poor little dogie, he said. Poor little orphan. Losing your mother, just like a human being. I call that mean luck. Then he was off, mustard swinging in a steady lope down the gully and up toward the ridge that led to the river trail. End of chapter 8